Coming up today, the devastating impact of Iran's internet shutdown, and we find out what happened when a Danish city banned Google from its schools. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Morgan Meeker. Hello. And Matthew Burgess. Hello. This was the week when the UN elected Doreen Bogdan-Martin as the head of the International Telecommunication Union, or ITU. The organisation plays a leading role in setting global technological standards on everything from orbits of satellites to telecoms infrastructure. Bogdan Martin, who's American, beat her Russian rival, Rishad Ishmailov, by 139 votes to 25. It was also the week when Netflix announced it is launching its own video game studio. At the same time, Google announced plans to shut down its Stadia cloud gaming service after launching it in November 2019. This was also the week when Twitter's lawyers claimed that Musk's bot calculations were completely bogus. The entrepreneur had claimed that Twitter's bot problem far outstripped its own estimations of 5%, motivating him to try to pull out of buying the business. Yet the social media company's legal team has now said two consultancies employed by Musk had provided numbers that conflicted with his own argument of 5% and 11%, broadly in line with Twitter's. It was also the week when Apple removed Russia's biggest homegrown social network, VK, from its global app store, citing sanctions. VK's new CEO, Vladimir Kirienko, is the son of one of Putin's most powerful aides and has featured on EU and UK sanctions lists. Let's just pause for a minute, go back to what Matt Burgess said. Google shutting down Stadia, into which it has ploughed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, well, maybe not that much, a lot of money. Um, A lot of money, a lot of hype. Um, It claimed it was going to be not just the future of gaming, but a big part of the future of entertainment. Um, Within three years, it's completely shut it down. And it's interesting to see Netflix kind of trying the same trick in a different way, trying to build a gaming business into a platform that, or into a company that hasn't typically served gamers do you matt do you think netflix can succeed where google failed or is it sort of heading down the same path probably uh, i don't hate to be pessimistic but probably heading down the same path um i don't know gaming is just an, an industry that is so hard to to break into and to do very successfully uh, in terms of like game big budget games can cost un- tens hundreds millions of dollars um and take huge resources to produce and um obviously sort of like google as you say plowed a lot of money and, and effort into uh stadia and while it's not the same as netflix launching launching a studio uh, it just shows that how difficult this is and as an industry to try and really get into i guess yeah and you know amazon's trying to make its own video games as well um amazon owns twitch it's hard. Um, and companies like Sony and Nintendo and Ubisoft and EA have an awful lot of power and influence and breaking into that club, as Microsoft has found over the past 20 or so years of having the Xbox, is easier said than done. All right, let's get into the facts. What did we learn this week, Morgan? So this week, with so I've been thinking about King Charles and his ascension to the throne. And related to that, I've been learning about all the weird things that he will now own as Britain's monarch. So I feel like everybody already knows that due to this ancient law, he effectively owns all of the swans in Britain. 
But what I didn't know is that the Crown Estate, so the corporation belonging to the British monarchy, also owns vast amounts of the seabed surrounding Britain. So they own it in some places up to 12 miles deep into the sea. And so this essentially makes, the makes them the country's biggest landlord of wind turbines. And so interestingly, or I thought interestingly, this has actually been very uh, profitable for the Crown Estate, especially recently, and it's, as it's watched the value of the land underneath those turbines sort of surge, thanks to all the lucrative offshore wind deals it's been doing with companies like Shell and BP. This makes me an even prouder monarchist royalist. This is truly <laughs> <What>? tremendous. <laughs> also, the, the Crown Estate also owns, because you, you can look up, there's like a public registry of all the random things that the Crown Estate owns, and it includes things like shopping centres and industrial estates. Truly, it is a strange, strange thing. Natasha, what did you learn this week? Uh, nothing monarchical um i learned something very simple that i don't want anyone to dispute because the internet has apparently been trying to find alternatives to these words this is a fact so the words scrunched and the archaic word strengthed which are each 10 letters long are the longest english words that are only one syllable long so scrunched and strengthed i'll take no questions at this time <laughs> i mean they both sound like they've got two syllables they don't. They have one. <laughs> <laughs> Moving I swiftly I on. checked this. I, I actually started out with a different fact, um, but I, I couldn't read the word. So it was like the longest word in the English language. I just couldn't read it. So therefore, I thought scrunched and strengthed okay. are words that I can manage with one syllable. And also, I reckon there's probably some interesting examples of other one-syllable words in different languages as well. So. Potentially interesting, yes. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you know a really long one-syllable word in a language other than English. Um, Natasha, I think you're going to be on the podcast next week as well, or even not, you'll be on again soon. So you've got a little bit of time <laughs> sure. to practice saying the longest word in the English language. Oh, I tried yesterday well, for about take, half take, an hour. Take some more time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, no weekend yeah. plans, perhaps. You can uh, just sit there and practice the longest word in the English language. We'll bring that sure, on the show good. soon. Yeah, great. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Um, our first story this week is about internet shutdowns in Iran. This week, Matt Burgess, you went into great detail on how this is being done, technically what the impact is like on the ground. But before we get into that, let's take a look at what's going on in Iran right now and also how we got to this point. So on September the 16th, a 22-year-old Iranian woman uh, named Masha Armini died in police custody. Armini had been arrested by the country's morality police for not wearing uh, suitable attire in inverted quotation marks there and she was arrested for not wearing her hijab headscarf in public um, police claimed that she died after suffering a from a heart attack however eyewitnesses say that she'd been severely beaten by police while in custody and this incident has sparked more than two weeks of protests across iran um, they started in the area where Armenia was from but have since spread around the nation with thousands of people taking to the streets in protest. Uh, many of the protests are focused on uh, women's rights in Iran and uh, every day new images are appearing of uh, women involved in the protests, either burning their hijabs or also just going into the public without them. Um, but the protests have also uh, spread to incorporate wider frustration about the Iranian regime and repression across the country. And these protests have been met with uh, 
brutal violence from the police. The latest death toll from one human rights organisation says around 83 people have been killed during the last two weeks of the demonstrations. Uh, and at the same time, uh, human rights defenders and up to sort of 28 journalists among uh, members of the public have also been arrested. And, these, and as these protests have spread, Iranian officials have turned to the draconian practice of shutting down the internet. Which is, I mean, what, what's happening on the ground is, is hugely concerning, but the fact that it's happening, if you like, out of the view of the rest of the world is even more concerning. And the ability for people within Iran to communicate amongst themselves has been severely repressed by the actions taken by the government to shut down the internet. So how widespread are these shutdowns? And what's the impact been on the ground for people joining these protests or just people trying to go about their everyday lives? Much like uh, some of the protests, uh, the internet shutdown started small but have grown in size in recent days. Um, so analysts monitoring internet conne- connectivity in the country have spotted curfew-like shutdowns of internet connections throughout Iran's big, three biggest mobile operating companies, Iransel, MCI and Rytel. Um, and these shutdowns have usually started around 4pm each afternoon and last around midnight. And during that time, people trying to connect to the internet or get mobile signal on their phone haven't been able to do so. Um, However, there have also been wider shutdowns as the protests have grown in momentum. Iranian authorities have also targeted individual apps and services that are used by people to communicate and organise themselves. So WhatsApp, Signal, Instagram, Skype, Viber uh, have all faced targeted blocks. Um, With with WhatsApp, Iranian numbers outside the country all faced disruption uh, earlier in the blocking when the first blocks were introduced. Um, And I know, James, you're probably going to ask uh, how they shut down the internet. Um, But at this stage, it's one of those things that is slightly unknown. So as far as we know, Wi-Fi and fixed internet connections in homes have been haven't been disrupted that much, um, although there are some reports of this emerging now. But for the actual shutdowns themselves, um, for the mobile networks, uh, it is likely to have just been uh, those companies being told by the Iranian government or ordered with uh, official sort of declarations to shut their services down uh, over those specific times. Um, While when we're talking about different messaging apps such as WhatsApp and Skype and all of that, um, there is likely some sort of technical filtering going on to stop those parts of um, those apps from actually being accessible and working and, and blocking them in a slightly different way to sort of just turning off or shutting down sort of mobile connections. So while we don't specifically know the technical method that Iran is using, this isn't unprecedented or especially novel, right? The Great Firewall of China, which we've known about and talked about for quite some time. If you go into China and you try to access certain apps and services that you can outside of China, you cannot inside of China. And even in the UK on mobile phone networks, the government introduced legislation or required mobile phone networks to by default block adult content and you have to go in and change settings if you want to access that content on a mobile device and I think on on fixed fixed line communications um, so home broadband as well so so that's to say that what's happening in Iran isn't unusual but the way it's being used to shut down um, protests and, and stop people from um from having freedom of expression that's that's the part that's really concerning um but i imagine there are ways for people to dodge this shutdown i mean they can just go home and use home wi-fi as as one example right so how is information getting out of iran and, and how are people getting around these blocks 
to communicate when this sort of curfew like block um, shutdown comes into place? Yeah, so there is definitely some information coming out of Iran and we're going to get onto a bit more of some of that in, in, in it shortly. But um, yeah, when the, when the shutdowns first started, I started speaking to uh, one group of activists that were using uh, Instagram and Twitter to uh, get the message of what is happening on the ground out. And they sort of uh, gave a little bit of an indication of, I guess, why being able to be online and connect to um, the internet during these protests is pretty crucial for people. So this group has uh, a network of people in cities around Iran. There's sort of like a core group of 10 of them that are um, using their social media or the main social media account here um, to uh, publish videos and photos from the protests uh, to show other people what is happening. And they were saying that uh, this core group of 10 of them, some are based in Iran, some are based outside of it. And as they're uploading videos, um, they are essentially getting sent hundreds uh, or thousands of them a day. And and uh, sort of vetting them before they put them online. But they were saying that literally just going through this process of uploading videos so people can see them sort of just shows how powerful the internet is. They said that in previous shutdowns in Iran, um, people haven't been able to see what's going on in other cities. So that's discouraged them from protesting. It's uh, sort of like had a bit of a chilling effect, not being able to see uh, the communications. And also just uh, when people can't talk to each other around these protests, they can't uh, necessarily organize what's happening, where they're going to go, where they're going to meet or discuss and see what's happening. And uh, it also just having that sh- that internet being offline uh, means that information isn't coming out. So the world isn't seeing what is necessarily going on. Um, but as you say, there are some ways like fixed mobile internet connections uh, for, for through people's homes and stuff like that are still largely online, although there has been some more recent disruption. Um, but we have seen sort of a surge in people using uh, or looking for VPNs and also uh, the Tor anonymity service in Iran, which would allow people to, uh, if they can, get online um, in, in some ways that will allow them to sort of like access a more free and open internet. Um, and also the messaging app Signal has launched a bridge which allows people to connect to the app um, uh, if they're in Iran um, through sort of other people's connections, essentially. So there are efforts around uh, sort of anti-censorship uh, stuff. But in in one case, if the internet does go down, or sorry, if mobile connections are down during these curfews, there isn't much you can do if you're not in an area where you're covered by mobile signal. Now, this isn't the first time that Iran has shut down the internet, and it won't be the last. When I'm interested in how this compares to previous crackdowns, some of the reporting that you've done around um, internet censorship in in Russia and Russian control of um, mobile and fixed line internet networks in Ukraine shows sort of a growing sophistication um, amongst um, draconian regimes to control communications. So does the current situation suggest that Iranian officials are getting quote-unquote better at turning off the internet? Are they developing new tactics in this sort of game of cat and mouse between a population that needs to be online and a government that wants to shut that down? In some ways, it, they have got um, a little bit better at shutting down the internet in, in this instance. So um, Iran Iranian officials have shut down uh, the internet three times in around the last 12 months, maybe slightly over that period. Uh, but the current one that is happening uh, is the biggest since November 2019, when uh, people in Iran took to the streets to protest uh, over cost of living uh 
rises and and sort of uh, drastic uh, increases to fuel prices. And at that that time, there was more than two hundred thousand people that were uh, protesting on the streets. And we, it's too early to necessarily say whether these protests are quite reaching that scale in terms of the amount of people that are out there at the second. Um, but during those uh, protests, um, Iranian officials did a complete internet shutdown, so there was no uh, fixed service. There was no sort of like mobile service. It wasn't this uh, process of um, sort of curfews where the internet might be on for half a day and then off for half the day. It was more of a, a just a complete shutdown. And during that, we know that um, hundreds of people were killed during those protests. Uh, there were estimates of around 1,500 people um, at the time and 4,000, nearly 5,000 people being injured uh, as well while those communications were offline. Um, but this time around, it seems like the internet shutdowns and stuff seem to be a little bit more sophisticated uh, for want of a better word. So in recent years, and including up to 2019 as well, uh, Iran has been improving its systems to control and shut down the internet by centralizing more of its uh, control and the, and the companies that run uh, parts of the internet as well. So um, there have been some technological developments and more centralized control. And normally much of this is done under the sort of like guise of uh, national security. Um, so that will be the the re the justification uh from officials which isn't a justification which holds up to much scrutiny but um this time around it essentially seems that the systems have been slightly more sophisticated and able to do more targeted control of services such as whatsapp and instagram and those platforms instead of shutting everything down it's been more like we're gonna shut mobile signal down and then target those apps as well in amongst all of this um as is Seemingly often the case, Elon Musk has inserted himself or inserted one of his companies, Starlink, which is the satellite internet communications company that Elon Musk runs. Um, it's had a role to play in Ukraine. Does it have a role to play here or is the situation on the ground so different that it's impossible even for Starlink to operate? Yeah, it's it, this is one where um, sort of the background to this is Musk has uh, tweeted that he's activating, um, in in his own words, Starlink in Iran. But um, after and this was this followed sort of like the US easing some sanctions against communications companies uh, such as Google and, and Facebook and stuff that are operating in Iran. So to give them a little bit more uh, ability to allow people to access services which might have previously not been accessible through sanctions. Um, but yeah, Musk sort of jumped on this bandwagon and uh, said that he was activating uh, Starlink in Iran. But in reality, it doesn't have too much of a role to play here. And that's because the situation in Iran is very different to the situation in Ukraine, right? To to take a point of direct comparison, um, you know, Starlink was able to get base stations into Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't have sanctions against it. The US is wanting and able to, to help out in Ukraine in a way that it's not wanting and able to help out in Iran. So all of those things are more in combination mean that Starlink is kind of a bit of a distraction here. In many ways, yes. I think that it is worth just like mentioning or talking about though, because uh, I know myself and other people when we've written stories about internet shutdowns, uh, either in Myanmar or other places in the world, and now uh, with this latest one in Iran, Starlink often does come up. And um, while it is a 
service that can provide internet connectivity to the ground, there have to be a few different components in place. So these type of satellite internet systems at the moment, they involve multiple different parts. So you obviously got to have the satellites orbiting Earth, which Starlink does, and it already provides connectivity to, to various places. But to provide that connectivity, it needs dishes, satellite dishes that will be like on people's either attached to people's houses or just wherever they're trying to access the internet from and also there has to be sort of like ground stations as well which are a piece of Starlink infrastructure that essentially can help to coordinate the satellites and how they uh, and the signals and basically how it all communicates with each other so you need two or three at least of these different pieces in place on the ground uh, for people to be able to get online and as you sort of alluded to there James um, it's hard to get these these pieces of physical infrastructure into Iran. Um, obviously, uh, relationships between political relationships between Iran and the US are not uh, not on the best of terms. Um, so the US import, uh, exporting or Iran importing these uh, satellites and uh, satellite dishes and all of these pieces of technology is something that's unlikely to happen. But if people could also sort of smuggle the devices in, there's also a case of like, there's only one, you'd only be able to smuggle, I guess, a handful of them into Iran or, or or get them into there so there's also that sort of like distribution um it comes down to really sort of like the logistics of uh getting their infrastructure in place money politics and sort of the iranian government a little bit as well um so it's starlink is like if you could get the equipment there it would work but in terms of just the practicalities of it it's not something that is a good solution for people in iran to be able to get online so leaving starlink to one side and returning to the ongoing internet shutdowns in Iran, the ongoing protests and civil unrest. Um, what happens next, both in terms of shutdowns and in terms of people's ability to safely protest? The protesting is, as we're speaking, is is still ongoing, and we obviously don't really know what the outcome of that will be at this stage. Um, but most recently, we have seen sort of some of the reports coming out around internet shutdowns, uh, around them getting a little bit worse. As I said uh, a little bit earlier, some of the sort of fixed providers, uh, I think one of Iran's biggest internet fixed providers has started to see a little bit of uh, service drop off in the last day or so, um, which is uh, potentially a worrying concern in terms of like these shutdowns expanding to different types of connections there's also been some reports in the last uh, couple of days around this um saying that uh two uh one european satellite company has said that it has seen some signal jamming for its tv satellite connections um so people broadcasts of uh bbc persian news and two other iranian opposition channels uh in the country have they've had some problems getting even tv news um so that's like another worrying sign in terms of shutting down overall uh ability to access information and and for people to be able to see what's going on and then in the longer term really they're could be uh, increased blocking of services in Iran. So uh, Twitter and Facebook and Telegram and a few other um, social media platforms have been banned and blocked in Iran for years. Um, but more recently, over the last few months, uh, and and even slightly longer than that as well, uh, there has been more political talk about banning Instagram, which is something that could be, if there is a more permanent ban in place rather than this type of block um, now, then that is obviously one of the few remaining big uh, social media platforms that people use in Iran. So that would be damaging to people's ability to communicate and also 
economically as well because these shutdowns have quite a big impact on a country's uh, economics so there are estimates already um, that these uh, shutdowns over the last two weeks have uh, cost uh, the Iranian economy at least 80 million dollars um, which longer that goes on there'll be more of an impact there but obviously um, I think that one of the the big concerns is that if internet shutdowns keep happening and, and the protests keep going on there may be a more brutal even more so uh, than has currently been cracked down from authorities and that could result in more deaths and injuries so that's one thing that i think everybody uh is, is externally is keen to avoid and just having that ability to have the internet connection to show what's going on uh is another lever of pressure to sort of stop the authorities uh from being too brutal we'll include a link to matt's full story in the show notes and it's a situation that will continue to monitor closely and bring you the latest on wired.com podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show our second story involves google now a lot of people have picked a fight with the company over the years but perhaps one of the most unusual ones is the small danish city of helsinger the city decided to ban the use of all Google products in its schools earlier this year in a data ownership row that has wide implications for Denmark and beyond. Now, Morgan, you travelled to Helsinger to find the people who triggered this ban. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so I was in Denmark at the start of September, and while I was there, I went to Helsinger, which is a 40-minute drive, a 40-minute train ride north of Copenhagen. So the city is famous for being where Shakespeare set Hamlet, and Hamlet's castle overlooks the Orison Strait, so it's a stretch of water, and you can actually see Sweden on the other side. So I was kind of fascinated by the idea that schools in this small Danish city with its Shakespeare tourists and its streets of multicoloured houses has ended up caught in the crossfire between Google and, the, and Denmark's data protection regulator. So when I went to visit one of the schools that features in the story by Midton School, it was very calm and peaceful. It was surrounded by houses with white picket fences and in classic Danish style, there were rows of students' bikes outside. But just a few weeks before I was there, this was the site of real chaos. So Denmark's public school system is really digital. Pen and paper have basically disappeared. But that means Helsinger schools are really reliant on Google Chromebooks and other Google education products for people to do classwork. So when the local municipality of Helsinger was forced to ban all Google products, this was quite a big deal. So teachers were forced to drag old books out of the school's basement. Children were so unused to working on paper, they complained they couldn't read their own handwriting. Dyslexic children were particularly affected. They missed the Chromebooks that teachers said made their lives much easier. But I think what's really interesting is this whole saga basically started with one parent and I eventually managed to track him down. Yeah, so these things do tend to start really small, don't they? In this case, it was a a very worried stay-at-home parent who found themselves suddenly acting as an activist because they were worried about their child. Um, he pointed out that no one knows what Google does, does with their children's data when they use the company's products and services at school and where that data is stored. So, so when you spoke to this parent, what did they say happened? Yeah, so when I started looking into this story, I sort of heard that it was started by one parent and eventually I found Jesper. So he used to work in the music industry. Now he's a stay-at-home dad. Jesper has never been involved in any kind of activism. But that changed when his eight-year-old came to him really worried one day back in 2019. So his son said that a classmate has used his YouTube account to write something very rude under someone else's video. And the kid's mind was, he was basically panicking, worrying that he was going to be kind of 
punished for this comment. So kind of fixating on it. But Jesper wasn't worried about the kid being punished. He he was just confused because he was kind of asking him, what are you talking about? I've never given you a YouTube account. I've never said the school could give you one either. So when he discovered that his son had a YouTube account, and not only a YouTube account, but one that publicly listed his name, his school and his class, he was really outraged. And he considered this a violation of his son's right to privacy under Europe's GDPR law. And so that discovery basically started this whole chain of events. Jesper complained to the school, the school blamed Google, Google blamed the school. So Jesper escalated this, went to Denmark's data protection regulator. And when the data protection regulator started looking into this, it basically realised that the schools had no idea what Google was doing with students' data. Google says it doesn't use children's data for targeted ads, but there's no understanding about whether that data is sent to the US to do other things, to train Google's AI or to help improve Google workspace or support. And basically, the fact the schools didn't know prompted the data protection regulator to launch its own investigation, which eventually resulted in this ban. Yes, it's the lack of control here that was the main problem, that the school wasn't even able to answer really basic questions as to why a child had a YouTube account to begin with that was linked to his name and his school. Um, but, but I think it's also important to understand the scale of this, right? It's not just one school or one city or one municipality in, in Denmark. We're talking about a lot of schools. So it, it, Google's products are embedded within half of public schools in some way or another. They either use Google's products or the Google services or both. Um, and children as young as six get their first taste of its services. Some, sometimes they're given their first device if they happen to go to school that offers that at that point in their lives. And you talked earlier about how children were saying that they'd kind of forgotten how to write properly and read their own handwriting because they relied so much on Chromebook devices and doing things electronically. So w- what has happened to the schools since this ban? Are they looking for other devices? or services to try to replace Google should the ban continue? Yeah, so another person I spoke to for the story was Anders, and Anders runs the middle school at the school I mentioned earlier by Midton, um, which I visited in Helsinger. He was really interesting because he talked about feeling really torn in this scenario. He's really open about the fact that schools don't have the expertise or resources to be GDPR compliant, and also how Danish schools have become basically totally hooked on Google, despite the company not being 100% transparent on what it does with students' data. But Anders also spoke about how parents didn't seem to care about that. In his whole career, he had never heard a single parent complain about data protection. But when Google was banned, he got loads of complaints, especially from parents of dyslexic children who were really struggling. So the Helsinger bang, it, it lasted for just under two months between July and September. But schools got a reprieve at the beginning of September when the ban was suspended. There was a sense it was basically causing too much chaos. So what's happening now is Google and Helsinger have until November to reach a new agreement. If that's successful, Google and its products can stay in Helsinger. If not, the ban will be reinstated. But there's this sense among schools that there aren't any alternatives to Google, especially when they've spent thousands on all these Chromebooks. There's basically no budget to buy replacements. So we're kind of in this limbo period right now where schools are just sort of hoping for the best and hoping that the ban won't be reinstated and waiting to see what happens next. Right, so the decision on whether to reinstate this ban will happen in November. But until then, children and teachers have a moratorium of sorts going on. They're able to use these products. Obviously, that data is still being transferred and gathered and no one knows still where it's going, all that sort of stuff. But but the Danish data protection authorities have also said that 
they might want to take action in other municipalities in a wider ban, which could spell a lot of trouble for, for Google. Exactly. So people I spoke to are thinking about Helsinger as a, a precedent. So if the municipality can't reach a new agreement with Google, where they clearly understand what happens to students' data and Google is banned again, it will be really difficult to justify why other municipalities are able to safely continue using Google. So the Danish data protection regulator told me they've been approached by 45 other municipalities in Denmark about concerns related to Google products. So schools all over the country are sort of holding their breath over this and although Anders said that a lot of parents were ambivalent to data protection not all of them are so I spoke to one parent called Jan who lives in Haslev another Danish municipality and she's basically hoping the whole country does ban Google she said she's sick of giving her children's data to big tech giants like a lot of data activists in the country she's worried that we don't really know what a tech company can do if they have access to someone's online behavior right from the beginning of their life from when they're so young so she was talking about concerns that google would have so much data about danish children that the company could instantly identify them from their writing style for example so say they left an anonymous comment about politics online because google had been gathering data about their writing style since they were a child they were a child in school would the company then be able to recognize them that that person had written the comments so that's the kind of things that this case is making danish parents start thinking about start worrying about it's such a classic case of sort of convenience right where especially for for children i know you mentioned dyslexic children earlier and this is a huge help um to them and they're able to kind of adapt to schoolwork a lot better and it's a lot easier for a lot of you know parents and teachers to say or oh, help children by giving them access to this to this technology but there's not really a lot of thought process as to what happens afterwards with their data and, and i suppose what's happening in denmark speaks to a, a wider debate that's been going on for some time about the way data is being used in this case the data of vulnerable children but you know there's a wider thing about you know should our data be balkanized and kept in individual countries uh, that's something that's been especially Especially, you know, vociferous debate in in Europe, um, or or even curtailed and stop, you know, the likes of Google or other big tech companies just grabbing everyone's data and and exporting it to use in products and services that we don't know about. Yeah. So the Helsinger debate intersects with this these kind of wider concerns about what American tech companies do with. Europeans data. So Matt Burgess has written a lot about this as well. There's this growing movement to stop data being sent to the US. So I spoke to a lot of people who basically described Trump and the changes to US abortion rules as a wake up call kind of they were saying what happens if political system comes to power in America that Europe does not consider to be an ally, yet that system has access to piles of Europeans data. There's also the argument that Europe is always talking about competition and the dominance of US big tech. So why are we giving all this really valuable public sector data to American companies? If you gave that data to a European rival, one that was suggested was Germany's Nextcloud, for instance, isn't that a way to fuel the growth of European companies? People were making the case, shouldn't we be doing that instead of just defaulting to using big tech all the time? And that's one of the important points which we didn't end up putting in the article, but it's the idea of if you did use a company that's local, then that would go back into your own economy, which would therefore help you know the public sector again because it's a sort of cyclical thing rather than exporting it to another country. Um, but but again, you know, people have been talking about this topic for a really really long time, right? So one of the things that 
I found most fascinating about this story is that it wasn't a big European regulator that got involved or, you know, lobbyists or politicians who triggered this change. It was it was just this one parent who managed to, you know, take a stand and actually make a ban happen, which seems bizarre, right? Yeah, me too. That was one of the most striking things to me, uh, that when I was talking to data activists in Denmark, this wasn't new to them. They said they'd been warning about Google's heavy involvement in Danish schools for years. So, But what had been missing until now was one person to step forward and say hey I personally am affected by this and I don't think it's okay that activists describe Jesper to me as kind of a gift to their movement they needed someone to step forward to become that precedent to lodge a personal complaint with the data protection regulator and Jesper himself he told me that when he kind of discovered those activists and that community he felt a bit like a rock star people and it like instantly knew who he was so it does really show how one man can have a huge impact and it is kind of wild that Jesper could be the person who managed to almost single-handedly shove Google out of Denmark. It is interesting this idea that um, one person can be much more effective than an entire regulatory body even when that regulatory body spreads across a block of countries covering 300 million people but I guess it sort of speaks to what we look for in great stories as journalists, right? Morgan, when you first pitched this story, you didn't come in and say, oh yeah, this some um, regulatory body in Denmark is looking into the inner workings of a school's contract with Google. You said, there's this dad and he managed to get Google banned in an entire city's school system. And it's, it's like that ability to take something that we all kind of know to be true, which, which kind of happened with Cambridge Analytica as well, right? Everybody knew that Facebook was hoovering up all this information and its data practices probably weren't the best. There was something that made people uncomfortable about it. But when you were able to like zoom right in and make it relatable and human, these things that we all kind of are uncomfortable with, right? This idea that, well, should Google be in our school systems on this scale and with this sort of lack of accountability and oversight you zoom right in and you find Jesper and all of a sudden the problem becomes understandable right yeah exactly and I think Jesper's journey has also been quite interesting so he lodged this complaint in 2019 and at that point he was just worried about children's data being made public but as he sort of came into contact with Denmark's data protection movement and activists who worked in that space he became more worried about google and its presence in the school system so his personal journey sort of it was like him waking up to the issues in his own country and so i guess that made it a lot more accessible and a lot easier for the debate that has followed his case to sort of grow with him and his concerns yeah and as a as a parent i mean both both of my kids are still too young to go to school but um my partner and i are both of the mind that um will sort of try and explain to them the nature of big technology companies and the importance of privacy and having sort of control and ownership over their online lives and this kind of all wraps into that so I wonder for other parents of kids who are old enough to go to primary school or secondary school and you know you kind of if, if you're technically minded and you're butting up against the school system that's using all kinds of weird and wonderful technology in good and bad ways, like what's your experience of this being as parents? Podcast at wired.co.uk. I'm sure we've got a very technically literate listenership. Um, I've certainly been frustrated in the few years I've been a parent kind of coming up against the way that 
daycares use technology not always the best daycares who put pictures of kids on instagram by default even when it's a, a locked account so you need to be invited to view them um interesting things happen when children and technology collide not always in good ways podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with us about morgan's brilliant story or anything else that we talked about on the show this week or in previous weeks we did have a few emails um but they were all about people who hadn't had covid which is a story that grace talked about on the show last week so we're going to get grace back on next week and we'll have a bit of a chat about that then so thanks to people that have emailed in podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch that's just about it for this week then we'll be back same time next week have a good one take care goodbye bye